wrestling fans. This is Matt DeCourt, the voice of Paradise Alley Professional Wrestling, and I have some very exciting news to share with all of you, and that is Paradise Alley Pro Wrestling makes its triumphant return Saturday, August 29th for not just one, not just two, but three full, completely different cards of Alley Fights action. The first show starts at 3 p.m., the second show starts at 5 p.m., and the third show starts at 7 p.m. So be sure to check out ParadiseAlleyProWrestling.com, at OfficialPAPW on Twitter, at Official underscore PAPW on Instagram, and Paradise Alley Pro Wrestling on Facebook for ticket information. Because of social distancing guidelines, there is limited seating, so you want to make sure you get your tickets right away for at least one show. We hope you check out all three because it's going to be a tremendous day of pro wrestling action. There's going to be PAPW Originals, talent from all around the independent circuit. As Paradise Alley Pro Wrestling makes its triumphant return for three full cards of Alley Fights, Saturday, August 29th, from the Paradise Alley Pro Wrestling Performance Center, 662 Co. Avenue, East Haven, Connecticut. You will not want to miss this, because Paradise Alley Pro Wrestling is back. Ever since Alley Fights has been announced, people have been asking me, Beast, who are you wrestling? And I've had no answer. And honestly, I really don't care who it is. So right now, on August 29th, PAPW Alley Fights at the PAPW School in East Haven, the original Beast of New England, your PAPW Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion, I put out an open challenge to any competitor on the roster. So fans, make sure you reserve your seats. Showtimes are 3 p.m., 5 p.m., and I'll be appearing at 7 p.m. And I'll see you all at Alley Fights. And just remember, Beast Forever Rules. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Pro Zone. My name is Rick. Joining me, as always, is Dan. We have a very special guest today, and Duke the Dumpster Drossy. How's it going, Jack? It's going great. Thank you uh, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you coming. So um, before we start getting into, you know, whatever questions, but how you been handling the uh, pandemic? You know, everything's pretty good here in Tennessee. I'm in Middle Tennessee, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I guess... I guess they're all Trump supporters here because our gym opened. <laughs> our gym opened up like a month and a half after the pandemic thing, after the lockdown. Uh, we opened back up and uh, we started back. At, I work for a drug court program now. We started back into business. Now they've got some restrictions still going on, especially like in the government buildings. Like everybody's got to wear a mask in our building, but right. you know everything else is pretty loose uh, and people aren't dying there's not corpses in the streets so um i guess it's not too horrible now uh but it's going all right here yeah i work uh downtown new haven connecticut i know you've been there before uh working the new old new haven coliseum and it's amazing when this whole thing started i work in an office building literally in front of where the old coliseum used to be and i would walk outside and there'd literally be nobody around it's such a, a different city today than it was just six months ago yeah, it's shut everything down. Everything there's a lot of ghost towns out there these days. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, by the way, I just want to ask you, um, you started working on the Florida Indie circuit. Uh, what year was that about? Was uh, <clears throat> I, I started training when I was in high school. So this was uh, midnight or sorry, mid eighties. Um, let's see. I started working with the independents down there probably in the late eighties, 88, 89. I started working with the independents down there. Who were some of the people you worked with down there? The main company I worked for down there was Sunshine Wrestling Federation. Uh, they would later become Florida Championship Wrestling. The uh, I think Vince bought the name from them when he made it developmental, but a developmental uh, right. place back whenever. But uh, they had that name for a while. They didn't really do much with it. We were doing some shows and stuff. But it was kind of sporadic at best. Uh, back in those days, the independents weren't what they are now, or at right. least were before yeah. COVID. Um you know, I was working a couple times a month, maybe if I was lucky, four times a month. And I was going to school at the University of Miami at the same time, kind of wrestling part-time, putting together tape and stuff like that. Um, you said, did you wrestle in school? Were you, were you, did, were you an athlete in school? Uh, yeah, I wrestled in high school, which is <clears throat> kind of how I found out where the school was, the wrestling, pro wrestling school was. Um, we, My senior year, we did a fundraiser, and we brought in – what was still the championship wrestling from Florida guys, they, they were, you know, in the process of being bought out by Turner. And, um, you know, it was Lex Luger and Barry Windham and, and guys like that. And they came and wrestled in our gym and for a fundraiser. And my dad asked him where school was and the wrestlers at the high school got to work security and walk them to the ring. But that's how I found out where the school was. And, uh, I went and wrestled under a guy named Bobby Wales in Opalaka, Florida, which was, near Miami. Uh, and uh, another guy that came to our school was um, Norman Smiley. He came oh, through wow. uh, at one point, yeah, early on when he first started, too. He came through our school. It was just a little – it was a ring set up in a little warehouse, and that was it. There was no frills. There was nothing – just a ring in a, you know, right. a dirty warehouse. But, yeah, a lot of guys learned there, and Bobby was a great teacher. Dan, you have anything? Oh, so so uh, you were born in California, right? Yeah, Lodi, California. Moved to Miami when I was about four years old. My dad moved over there. He was in the military. He was an attorney. And uh, I grew up mainly in Miami, Florida. Now, who or what inspired you to pursue, like, this garbage man gimmick? Uh, when I was going to college at the University of Miami, I joined a fraternity. And uh, ATO. And the fraternity brothers knew I was already training to be a professional wrestler. And they thought that was the coolest thing. And they would sit around drinking beer, thinking up stupid names, you know, for stupid wrestling names for me. But one of them, one of these guys came up with this name, Rocco Gibraltar. And it stuck with me. It was a really good name. And I just remember kind of storing it in my computer bank and saying, one day I'm going to use that. And so I was going through college and I was wrestling on the indies. And um, I just remember one day sitting in my room. And I was trying to think of a gimmick. And I was trying to think of a gimmick that went with Rocco Gibraltar. And I thought, what would Vince, what kind of a character would work for Vince? And, um, and something that also kind of rhymed in some ways with Rocco Gibraltar. And I came up with the garbage man, Rocco Gibraltar. And it was perfect because Vince McMahon loved the cartoonish characters, the blue collar kind of worker kind of gimmick. Uh, and that's what I started doing. I think I probably did that for a good year 
before I ended up taking a shot with Vince, uh, and I just put together a bunch of tape wrestling as the garbage man Rocco Gibraltar down there in Florida for Sunshine Wrestling Federation. As much tape as I could and put together a promo package later on with that character. Who were some of the... um... Who are some of the earliest? Is there any names that you worked with in the uh, earliest days during the Indies before hitting WWF? Uh, Dave Heath was working with us quite a bit. Gangrel, oh, wow. he was wrestling yeah. as the Vampire Warrior back in those days, and Luna that. would Luna would work with us sometimes before she went back to work for Vince in like ninety two, ninety three, whatever it was. Right. Um, she was around. Let's see who else. Some guys that had worked with Vince as like kind of uh, full-time enhancement wrestlers, a guy named Joe Murto and a guy named Jimmy Young. Uh, Jimmy Young taught me a lot about the business because he had been up there. Um, it was back in the days, though, like in the 80s, when they had full-time enhancement guys like S.D. Jones and those guys that would travel right. also. Um, uh, you know, and other guys would kind of come through. Uh, Rusty Brooks wrestled down there yep. quite a bit. Um but, you know, I'm sure there's more. I'm just forgetting. But, yeah, there's quite a few guys that came through Florida. Cool. Danny. So how is that interaction like when you gave Vince McMahon uh, the tape? Uh, you said it was like your second promo tape. And he was, I think you said he was the second person who received your tape. Um, and, and then later on, you would receive a call from J.J. Dillon. How was that like? Well, I was <clears throat> finishing up college and, uh, in 93. And I was about to graduate and during college, I was working at a private beach club on an island where the members were people that owned homes on this uh, island, uh, kind of people with money, basically. Anyway, I remember I was at, I had given my notice and my plan was to drive around the country and go to the last remaining territories and, and try to get a job with my promotional packages. Well, I was reading the paper this day at work. And it talked about a TV executive convention at the Miami Beach Convention Center, the NATPE convention. And it talked about how Hulk Hogan was there and he had just signed with WCW and it was asking, they were asking him questions about the steroid scandal in the Miami Herald. And um, the last sentence of the article said, Vince McMahon, who was also in attendance, had no comment. And I realized Vince McMahon was in my town at that moment. And literally the next morning at 10 a.m., I walked through the door. And what I did was one of the members of this beach club was a TV executive, and he gave me his, his uh, credentials. And I wore a suit, and I wore his credentials, and I walked in there like I was an executive, and I walked right up to Vince McMahon, didn't give myself time to think about it or get scared or talk myself out of it. I just did it. I walked up to him. I introduced myself. I said I wanted to work for him. I told him I had been working on the independent scene down there for uh, several years. And he asked me a few questions, and then I got the hell out of there. And when I got out of there, that's when it hit me. So, But, yeah, I didn't give myself time to even get scared or think about it. I just did it. Right. What was, uh, what was it like in, to encounter him? I mean, it was like, um, you know. He's, um, I guess he's a pretty guy, big figure in the in the business. He's been what the top promoter for almost thirty years, probably longer than that. Right? Yeah, so. and uh, at that point, it was it was basically it was understood that nobody m walked up to Vince McMahon. You didn't just walk up and start talking to Vince McMahon. <laughs> um, and I just kind of threw that out the window. I said, you know what, this is the only chance I got. I don't have a brother or a friend who works there. I don't have anybody right. that's going to bring me in. Um, it would it would. 
this is my only shot. That's the way I looked at right. it. And um, I got a really put good piece of advice from a local wrestler in Miami that night before while I was planning this thing. I told him what I was going to do, and he said, if you see Vince McMahon alone, you better jump on him because he won't be alone for long. And I literally walked in there, and when I walked up to the WWF booth, there was this big group of people milling around, all the office people, you know, the Pat Pattersons, right. the Kevin Dunns. They were all in a big group, and Vince McMahon was over here drinking his coffee by himself. And I made a beeline right for him, and I just said, how are you, Mr. McMahon? It's nice to meet you. My name's Mike Drosy. And I gave him the whole pitch, and he was very nice. He was very gracious. I mean, I'm a pretty big dude, though, so I'm sure he could see something. He was like, okay, this guy might have something. Um, And I just spoke to him, you know, like I was applying for a job, and uh, that was it. And, yeah, he... Uh, I handed him the promotional package, and J.J. Dillon called me about a week later to bring me up for a tryout. There you go. So um, when you got called up and got pitched the idea to continue on with you know, your garbage man gimmick, obviously you went under a new name change with Duke the Dumpster. Now, was that your idea to say, hey, I'm going forward with this gimmick, or was it somebody who gave you the call and said, hey, we want you to do this? No, they liked it. They liked it from square from the get go. When he, I'm he probably opened it up and looked at it. I had a promotion, a promo picture in there too with the tape, and I'm sure he looked at it and went, "Okay, this has something. This is a good idea," because I knew I knew it was something he could work with. And um, right. they had they, there was a, no discussion about any other gimmick. Uh, as a matter of fact, they brought me in, and it was Shane McMahon that I met with when I came in to do my vignettes. And he was the one that told me my name was going to be Duke the Dumpster Drosy. And, uh, but there was never any discussion about any other type of gimmick. They loved it from the, from the get-go. They loved it. Wow. So um, I have here, it was a May 23rd, was it 93 uh, or 94, 95. You debuted on Raw against Barry Horowitz. What was it like working with Barry? Barry's uh, always fun to work with. Uh, you got to yeah. be careful, though. He was one of those veterans that uh, if you let him get away with it, he would take a whole lot, even though he was supposed to be putting you over. Uh, right. He would take as much as he could get because he, he is. he's a, He was a veteran then. He's a veteran yeah. now. Obviously. I mean, I, I watched Barry when I was in Florida. He wrestled um, in Florida. He had the uh, losing streak. Yeah. yeah, Jack Hardy had the losing streak gimmick and, and, and all that. Um, so I knew who he was, and it, it's funny because guys like that, when you come in, the other wrestlers, they warn you. They go, all right, be careful with Horowitz. Or they would say, be careful with Iron Mike Sharp or be careful with the Brooklyn Brawler because they're going to try to take over the match. As much as you give them, they'll take, and you can't let them take right. too much because it makes you look bad. The whole point of this is to get you over. And uh, – you know, you could tell he would, but I just kept cutting him off. But but me and Barry always had great matches. I always enjoyed wrestling Barry, and we're still friends to this day. Oh, he's a great guy. Yeah. yeah. Danny, you got something? Um, so, like, was there any type of, like, merchandise ideas that maybe, like, Vince or Bruce came up to you and was like, hey, we want to sell, like, you know, these toy garbage cans or, you know, trash lids? Well, back then, uh, money was real tight. Uh, it was the steroid scandal. Nobody was making any money. The houses were down. Uh, so they weren't just throwing around, you know, money for merchandise. And I mean, I, I remember hearing the story at one point where somebody said 
Steve Austin just wouldn't be marketable for T-shirts. Um, and, of course, he became the top-selling wrestler of all time. But uh, back then, no, not much. You know, right. they, would, they would try to come up with stuff like, you know, I'd be on the regular trading cards every once in a while, but I was never on anything where I got royalties for it, ever, until right. much later on when, like, by accident, maybe I appeared on somebody else's video. And I got like a fraction of a penny for each tape sold or something. But that was it. I never had any real merchandise. Um, I used to hear these guys like Kevin Nash and them talking about their their freaking royalty checks. And I was like, where do I get a royalty check? Um, but no, never had any merchandise. At one point, freaking Chief J. Strongbow had the idea that they were going to make cookies. And I was going to hand out cookies when I went to the ring. But they never ran with that, thank God. Um, <laughs> I never heard that one before. Yeah, that was his uh, idea, uh, passing out cookies. I was, I was like, it's great, Chief. Is that what you got for me? All right, thanks. But no, um, but no, nothing like no T-shirts. Uh, wasn't there? There really wasn't video games yet at that point, um, and you know, there just wasn't really anything for me. I was, a, I was an opening match mid card guy. So, uh, what was it like to work with uh, King Kong Bundy? I just watched that match earlier today oh my god if you watched really close at one point he drops a freaking knee on my face and he about broke my damn nose and i yes. and, and uh, up until the day he died here which last year whatever it was or i would see him at conventions and i would give him shit about it um we had this uh, <laughs> the thing was we were friends like on facebook but i would always write stories about him i didn't, I didn't care i was like i'm gonna tell right. the truth and uh you, you know, we had this kind of kayfabe heat going. But um, Bundy was an interesting character. Bundy never really liked me. He didn't think I deserved to be in the rest of the business. He thought I came from, like, this rich family or something, which I did not. <laughs> and uh, he, he thought I was, like, born with a, a silver spoon in my mouth and, and all that nonsense. And um, so he really didn't like me. And, and Bundy, if he didn't like you, he would talk a lot of crap. And uh, Bundy talked a lot of crap. But I didn't, I didn't take anything from him i mean i gave it back to him just as stiff right. um but yeah working with him was uh whew. you know like vader was stiff on purpose bundy was stiff because he just couldn't control his massive body so you know and this was the years right. where bundy came back after a long hiatus and he was yep. he was way out of his prime so that's what it was like to work with bundy it was a pain in the ass is what it was i, I still love him to death um, I think Backlund was back around this time too. Did you get a chance to work with Bob at all? Yeah, I worked with Bob a few times. Um, it's funny. I told the story one time where I wrestled him somewhere. It was like Colorado or something. We did a house yeah. show and it was interesting. You know, I was one of the wrestlers that was always at the bar. Uh, a lot of guys, there were some guys that didn't go to the bar. You know, Bob, you never saw Bob Backlund at the bar. This one particular yeah. night though, in the bar right across the street from the building we wrestled in. We were at the bar, and I looked down the bar, and there's Bob Backlund, and he's drinking a glass of milk. And I walked down, and I put my hand on his shoulder and pat his back, and I said, Bob, it's great to see you out, man. And we had just wrestled that night. And he turned around with that crazy look on his face, and he goes, get away from me. He literally started doing the gimmick with his hands. And I was so embarrassed. I was so freaking, I felt this big. I just turned around and walked away, you know, just shuffled still, away with my tail between my legs. But that was my Bob Backlund story because uh, 
you know, he was old school. He still believed in kayfabe. This was during the time when we were just starting to transition. Guys weren't kayfabing so much. A lot of guys, they just didn't care. And, right. But some of the old school guys were trying to hold on to it for dear life, and boy, he let me know that night. No, he's a he's a great guy. He lives, you know, not too far from here. But I see him at indie shows every now and again. He does that whole gimmick where he flips out when he's doing a photo shoot and stuff. It's hilarious to watch the uh, his victims, I guess, <laughs> that, that fall for it. Yeah, so, he is a great guy. Um, so you ended up working with Jerry Lawler. How he ended up uh, attacking you, hitting you with a trash can, and um, did that go any further? You guys had a small feud, right? If I remember yeah, that was the very first thing I did coming right out of the gate. My very first match on TV uh, was on Superstars against a guy named Mike Bell. And um, what happened was yep. I came out and Jerry Lawler was standing there like he wanted to interview me uh, on oh, the yeah. Superstar show. And I walked up to answer his questions and he put a clothespin on his nose like I stunk and he started laughing. So I dumped garbage on his head. That's what set it up. Then... Fast forward to Monday Night Raw, the next live Monday Night Raw. We did the deal with King's Court where he brought me out and tried to interview me, but he wouldn't let me talk very much. He wouldn't let me get in the ring. And I got frustrated, so I just left. And the deal was he was supposed to jump me from behind and beat me up and just set up the heat of the angle. Right before we went out, Lawler came to me and he asked me, he goes, you think it would be okay if when I jump you, I grab your can and hit you with it? And I was like... You know, hell yeah. That'll just be more heat. You know, I was thinking it'll be great. So we go out, we do the deal. He hits me and he brings that can up and I turn around and he goes, wham. As soon as he does, the camera pulls away. Uh, Whoever was in the truck shot back to a different camera angle and pulled it out because they freaked out because it was too violent for TV. Really? And they came back on TV with Gorilla Monsoon and Macho Man and apologized for it and said you would never see that again on their TV. And um, when I got to the back, Shane McMahon came running up to me and asked me what the hell happened. And I said, well, they asked if we could do it. And we went up to Jack Lanza. He was the agent in charge. We asked him, and he was just like, it's live TV. The hell with it. Just do it. <laughs> so I'm the brand new guy, and I'm taking right. this advice. And uh, so I come back, and I get the brunt of it like I did it, you know. And um, – it had tons of heat. It had tons of potential. But then they just crapped all over it after that. And it never even went to a pay-per-view match. Me and Lawler, we had the blow-off on a Monday Night Raw and uh, where Doink and Dink, the clowns, got involved. And oh. he, went, he went to the thing with Doink and Dink with the four midget kings and the four dinks yep. and whatever. And, um, and I just went back to whatever I was doing. you know. And I didn't have another angle after that till Triple H. That's what I wanted to ask you about the uh, next. How how did that come about, the feud with uh, Hunter versus Helmsley? The thing with, with Triple H was basically I was com- coming to the end of my first two-year deal. When you signed with Vince, you would sign for two years, and then you would roll over one year at a time after that. And uh, my first two-year deal was about up. And after the Jerry Lawler thing, they just weren't doing anything with me. They were just eating me alive, and, you know, I was losing to everybody. And, and uh right. Then they weren't even putting me on TV very much, and they weren't putting me on house shows, so I wasn't making money, and I was getting really frustrated. So the situation came up. It got to the point where I wasn't even bringing my gear into the building for TV because they weren't using me. And this one night, I remember, my gear was in the car, and at the last second, they came running up and said, we want you to go out and work with this new guy. 
And the new guy was the ringmaster, Steve Austin. Yep. And uh, my contract was about up, and I was frustrated. And I was riding with Bret Hart at the time, and uh, his piece of advice was refuse to do it because uh, they wanted me to do the job for him. So I went in and talked to Bruce, and uh, basically I just basically said, what the hell do you guys want me to do, man? You're killing me. Um, and and uh, so I, I didn't want to do the job for Stone Cold Steve Austin. We still laugh about that to this day, by the way. But uh, I went and t explained it to Steve. I said, it has nothing to do with you personally. They're just killing me. And of all the people in the world, he understood after coming from WCW. But right. what ended up happening is I didn't have to do the job. Bruce went and talked to Vince. Vince came and talked to me the next day at TV, and he started making all these promises. He says, I said, what do I got to do to take the next step to the next level? Uh, and he said, you know, he gives that famous answer, you're doing it now, pal, you know. And uh, I was like, great, I'm finally going to get a push. And uh, so they set me up in the angle with Triple H to kind of pacify me to get me to re-sign the next year deal. And as soon as I signed that one year, they beat me by Triple H, and then they started killing me again. But that's how it worked. But, uh, yeah, that's why they set me up with Triple H. So then the Triple H thing, we had the free-for-all match to see who was number one and number 30 in that Royal Rumble. Uh, they let me win by disqualification because he hit me with brass knuckles, and Gorilla Monsoon came out and overturned it, right? And uh, so he had to be number one, and I was number 30. He was pissed off. So he jumped me at the next Superstars TV and cut my hair off, right? Because my thing was I wanted to change my appearance and become a heel, which they kept promising me. And JR came up with the idea of cutting the hair off in the angle. So I said, yes, I'm, I'm willing to do it. So we did that. Uh, then fast forward to In Your House. We had the pay-per-view match. And he beats me by hitting me in the face with my own trash can lid. And I didn't like the finish. I did not like the finish, and uh, I told the agent that, and I even told Vince that. Uh, and that was where Vince famously said to me, just show up like you always do, with a smile on your face, and do your job. And uh, so that's basically what I did. But it was just interesting because, you know, why wouldn't Gorilla Monsoon come out the second time and overturn that one? So right. <clears throat> anyway, they did all that. I lost the match at In Your House. They come right, they put him with Mark Merrow. But then for no reason, the very next Raw, they put me, I believe it was the very next Raw, I had to wrestle him again and get beat straight up. And uh, that was the match where I pressed him over my head and I looked right at the hard camera and I went, I smiled like, you know, I showed up, I smiled, I did my job. <clears throat> but I did that just for Vince. He was sitting at ringside. And that was one of those moments I can look back on and say, that was probably the beginning of the end of my wrestling right. career at the WWF. So, yeah, that's how that went down. Now, uh, so during your tenure um, in the WWF, obviously, you've probably had some encounters with the late Owen Hart. Um, what are some memories with Owen and was there like any ribs involved? And were, you know, as people would say, was he one of the nicest guys you ever met? Yeah, he was. Owen, he was very mischievous all the time, looking to get into things. But the ribs he pulled were harmless. They were not bad ribs where they hurt people or cost people money or, you know, or anything like that. Um, Owen 
was one of a very few quality human beings that I met in the wrestling business and specifically in the World Wrestling Federation. Um, Owen Hart had a good, he had a good heart. He had a good soul and he would try to help you and he would try to give you advice while he still ribbed you, but he would try to give you good advice. Uh, And I remember he broke me in right when I started. He did the old Domino's pizza rib where I'm sleeping in the middle of the night in my hotel room. And my phone rings at 2 a.m. And I hear this voice trying to convince me to buy the latest special on pizza at Domino's. And I got pissed off thinking it was really Domino's because I fell for it and uh, hung up. He called me back and said, listen, I'm just trying to feed my kids. He got this attitude about him. And I was like, I can't believe this son of a bitch is yelling at me. And then anyways, we end up having this whole conversation and I hang up and hang up again. And well, Owen had brought one of those, you remember the old school voicemail machines with the little cassettes in them to yep. tape your, your answering machine? He brought one of those and hooked it up to the hotel phone and recorded the whole damn thing <laughs> and played it in the locker room for the boys the next day to listen to. So on top of being ribbed, I That's got embarrassed hilarious. about it afterwards. But Owen always pulled stuff like that, and he was always fun. If you ever wrestled Owen, you could bet for sure, at some point in that ring, during that match, he was going to make you and everybody else laugh by doing something. And he always did. Wow. That's awesome. Damn it. Now, uh, you know, another story that I heard, too, um, it was actually with Hannibal TV, and Justin Credible was talking about how you hid his Aldo Montoya mask when you guys were overseas. Um, how did that come about? <laughs> you know what? Some people... Some wrestlers are very devious in the way that they can rib. They do these, I call it an indirect rib. And what happened here was we were in Kuwait and we were doing that tournament, the Kuwaiti Cup tournament. And, um, you know, it was just, it was, it was an interesting trip. Uh, you know, alcohol is illegal over there. So we had to find other ways. And I brought a bunch of GHB on the trip and everybody was on GHB. And anyway, this particular day, I finished wrestling and was in sitting in the locker room. And who was sitting next to me? The British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith. Davy Boy Smith <laughs> is one of the greatest instigators the wrestling business has ever seen. Yeah, what happened on this occasion is we were just sitting there, calm as could be, just, you know, and I'm getting changed after my match. And he's sitting there and he looks at me. He elbows me like this. He, he, he elbows me sitting on the bench. And on the table in front of us was Aldo Montoya's Tweety Bird yellow mask. Okay? And Davy Boy, all he did was he nudged and he looked at the, he nodded towards the, the mask like that. Like, look, look, you should get it. You know, basically, that's all he did. So what I did is uh, I, I thought it was a harmless little joke. I took the mask and in this locker room, they had a fruit basket on that same table right next to the mask. I put it under the basket so you couldn't see it. That's all I did, right? (laughs) Turns out, Aldo Montoya, PJ Walker, just incredible, he didn't want to sell it. So he just acted like, you know, nothing was wrong and didn't ask about his mask, thinking whoever took it would give it back. And I totally forgot I put it under the freaking basket. So we come back the next day. And they're talking about how his mask is gone. And I look under this basket and it's gone. Whoever came in there and cleaned the locker room afterwards found that and took it home as a souvenir, apparently. 
And I felt freaking horrible. But wow. the problem is, Davy Boy immediately started telling people it was me. Because <laughs> that's how Davy Boy operated. He started telling people. So then what happens is, I believe Davy Boy gets Bret Hart involved. Because I come back from the ring, and Bret Hart pulls me aside. And he goes, I'm just going to tell you. Shawn Michaels is talking major shit about you, and you need to do something about it. So then I go sit down next to Shawn, and I said, Shawn, are me and you going to have a problem? You just tell me if we are. Because, and he goes, no, no, no. You know, he started back, and he goes, no, no, no. I'm just saying people shouldn't mess with other people's gimmicks. And I said, I don't know what you're talking. You know, I was playing it off. I was lying to the bitter end because I felt so bad and I didn't want to admit that I had done that uh, because I didn't mean to take his thing and have it lost, but I had to save face and I certainly wasn't going to take shit off of Shawn Michaels. So, um, you know, I kind of stood up to him a little bit, uh, even though I was, I was the asshole in that scenario, (laughs) but, uh, that's how it happened. And, uh, I don't even know if, if just incredible or PJ knew that until much later on many years later. Yeah. Now, now with that, well, now with that confrontation with Sean and the Click and everything, um, is that what ultimately led you to, you know, be a part of Undertaker's BSK group, or were all you guys buddies? <clears throat> Look, everybody got along for the most part. Um, you know, I didn't have a problem with the Click. Now, I will say this: later on, when I started using more drugs and I was getting very irrational in the way I was acting and stuff. I started getting paranoid and thinking that the click was responsible for my lack of a push, uh, which is stupid. But um, really, for the most part, though, you know, I got along with everybody. I tried to. Um, And the BSK thing, you know, at one point, I would say at one point, I think everybody that wasn't in the click was in BSK. To the point where, like, Owen Hart had these hats made that said BSK on the back and your name on the front. But, um... I wasn't really in BSK like, you know, like Taker and Godfather and the Hog Farmers and Yokozuna and Savio and all those guys. I mean, that I think that was the foundation of that BSK group, which they really started getting more serious about during the Attitude Era. You know, we just kind of talked about it a little bit and we played cards and, and dominoes in the back of the bus. But um, it wasn't they didn't take it as serious until later on, I don't think. So I was never really a part of bsk i mean i didn't go get any tattoos or anything like that but um i think a lot of people were who whoever wasn't in the click was part of undertaker's uh, uh group at one point or another um you ended up leaving in the summer of 1996 what ultimately led to that was it just unhappiness with uh, being there how you were treated as a talent etc yeah, they dropped me back into just doing jobs for the new heels that came in, and I did I did a job for Vader, I did a job for Mankind, I did a, and then I did a, I did a job for uh, T. L. Hopper. T. L. Hopper was right. probably the last one, and at that point I was really fed up. And and at TVs I was having these little impromptu meetings with Vince. Where it would be, Vin- it would be Vince McMahon and Jerry Briscoe standing next to each other talking to me like he had Briscoe was there to be his bodyguard or something. I don't know, but I was talking to Vince and saying stupid shit like, "If you're not going to use me better than this, send me home" and stuff like that. Um, and then at one point, Vince offered to send me to Memphis to work with Jerry Lawler uh, with the USWA, 
And uh, interestingly, he said he was going to send me there and pay me $1,000 a week. $1,000 a week was a lot more money than I was making at that point in the WWF. They weren't using me on TV. They weren't sending me out on house shows. I wasn't, I, I wasn't making any money. So I, I agreed to that. I said, yes, I will go to Memphis and I will do that for $1,000 a week. And then I said that I said one thing that probably sealed my fate. I said to Vince McMahon, I'm going to need that in writing. And that was probably the end. Because shortly thereafter at TV, he sent Jerry Briscoe up to me. And Jerry told me that Vince said, you can go ahead on home. And I had just flown from Miami, Florida to Vancouver, freaking British Columbia, for TVs. And I was just sitting there for no reason. And, uh, you know, then I went home after that and that was it. But that's how it happened. Wow. Um, I know you mentioned that you had one match in WCW after that. Um, I had a tryout match. Yeah, who did? Who was that against? I um, I don't, I don't remember know. seeing that. Or I don't even know the guy's name. He was a big old dude. He was a bodybuilder, but uh, I think he was from Germany. But he was really stiff, like mm-hmm. stiff in the ring, not like stiff beating you up. But he was stiff, right. like he didn't move well. He didn't have good timing, and he, at one point he he screwed up a spot so bad that I just started putting the boots to him. I just started kicking the hell out of him. And uh, this is a freaking tryout match. Uh, So that did not look very good on me. Uh, You know, afterwards, Arn Anderson was telling me, calling me a crowbar. So uh, it did not go well. But you, you, it's hard to find that match. It's out there, but on YouTube, it just says two guys wrestling in a dark match for WCW in whatever day or whatever month and year it was. Because I was wearing a singlet. I wasn't wearing a Duke the Dumpster outfit or nothing. Um, I got it somewhere on my Facebook page. I've got it. But, yeah, it's hard to find. But I had one match. It was a tryout match. And uh, I, I don't think Eric Bischoff was interested. Now, um, so uh, uh, during your time... Um, basically circulating back to the independent circuit. Um, was there any calls from, like, you know, mentions from ECW that said, like, hey, we're interested in you? Because the way I see it, I believe your dumpster gimmick would have fit well, um, especially in his promotion. Yeah, uh, during that time, I'll tell you what my mindset was. No, there was no phone calls or anything, but I was not looking to go to ECW. Um During those days, before the Attitude Era and before all the hardcore stuff really started taking off, we viewed ECW as not really not real wrestling. Um, You know, it was just guys beating the hell out of each other and not getting paid much money to do it. Um, So I did not look at that as an option. Now, looking back, uh, if I was intelligent, I would have done it um, because it would have been a perfect fit. And I mean, you look guys like. Um, Cactus Jack came through there and came to WWF and did really well. Steve Austin came through ECW and came to WWF and did really well. Um, but I wasn't looking at it in those terms. I was just looking at it as, do I want to go there and, and get the hell beat out of myself? And my body was already beat up and uh, my spine was screwed up. And do I want to go do that and not make much money? You know, will it be worth it? Uh, and I wasn't looking at the big picture on like possibly going back to rebuilding myself and going to another federation i just didn't want to go there so that's why i didn't pursue it and uh also in 2000 uh 
you ended up resurging back to FCW, ended up becoming FCW heavyweight champion, and you ended up forming a tag team or a faction, I should say, of the Beach Bullies. Now, how did that come about? Wow, you've done your research. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, FCW was actually the original, the original independent that I worked for before I went to work for Vince was Sunshine Wrestling Federation. And what they did is uh, they got much, they got more credible, and they signed a deal with a TV station locally in Miami, and they changed their name to FCW. They took the Florida Championship Wrestling name, uh, and they started running shows, and they tried to start doing TV. Um, but yeah, me and uh, golly, what was his name? The Warlock, maybe. Uh, we formed a tag team called the Beach Boys. It was just something new and different. Uh, we had fun with it, but it didn't last very long at all. I don't think we even wrestled many matches at all um, because it kind of fell apart and they didn't really get any more TVs. They did like one show, and I don't think they ever did anything else. But, um, yeah, that's what happened. I was working with them. I had I had bought a ring, and I set it up. They've got a warehouse, and they were paying, you know, the, this – TV station was paying us salaries, which was unheard of in right. independence. And uh, I was getting a salary. I had the wrestling ring. I was training wrestlers and uh, I was working in their office. But the drug use, I, my drug use had gotten so bad that I just couldn't keep it together anymore. And they ended up firing me um, over a situation with a rental van that I used to uh, take the ring to a show. You know, I kept the this van for an extra day or something happened. I don't remember. It was not a, really a big deal, but it pissed them off. I think they were looking to fire me anyway because I was drinking in the middle of the day and using drugs and all that crap. So that's how I lost that deal. Uh, and they didn't do much else with it anyway after that. When you were talking about the Florida Championship Wrestling in the earlier 2000s, was Mike Enos wrestling there? I think yeah, I'm trying to think if that was the same I, group. Not I when I was there. I never okay. saw Mike Enos there. I, I know he was down there in Florida somewhere uh, around that time period. He might have came um, in after, the, after, yeah. after I left. He may have came down there. See, because you got to understand, I left. I, I left around 2001. I had when I was still working for them. I went and did the gimmick battle royal, but then I came back and worked for them a little while longer, and then I got fired. And then I think shortly after I got fired was when 9-11 happened. So that's kind of the timeline of how long I was there. I think I was there till mid-2001, and I was out for a few months with that whole 9-11. I remember when that happened. But um, it was just strange that, uh, I mean, I, I didn't see them do much else with it. And, I, again, I don't know if Mike Enos was there. I, I'm sure they brought some people in. Like, they were bringing Luna back to work for them sometimes, and Dave Heath was working for them quite a bit, um, you know, and guys like that. But, um, you know, it was what it was. I was in no shape to wrestle. I got to the point where I was really just unemployable. So, yeah, I had to go. And that's when I really just disappeared for, like, a long time after that. Um, to backtrack a little bit uh, before we get into anything else, um, you ended up going to Germany for Otto Vance and won the title over there, correct? Um, how did that come about? How did that deal come about and you being on that tour? I had moved to Orlando, and I was trying to. that's when I was trying to actively get hired by WCW. Uh, okay. But what happened was I was staying with a friend of mine in Orlando, and um, 
I was still talking to Bret Hart quite a bit, and I was still talking to Steve Austin quite a bit. And at one point, I think Bret Hart's brother, Ross Hart, mm-hmm. uh, was talking to Otto in Germany, Big Otto Vons in, in Austria. And Otto was looking for big guys. And uh, my name came up, and Ross Hart helped me get booked with Otto. I went in originally for one <laughs> shot. I did one match, and... Uh, but when I was there, he asked me if I could come back and do the season uh, because they were getting re- ready to lose their champion, Rambo. He was going to the WWF. So I came back and did the season, and he made me the champion for that entire season, uh, the CWA. And I actually, you know, I was doing a lot of drugs before that, but when I got there, it kind of slowed. I mean, I was drinking a lot, but I slowed down on the drugs, and I could kind of keep it together. And at one point, I even got in pretty good shape. Uh, when I was working for Otto, so it was a good experience, but I never ended up going back. I I went back home and then just quit wrestling altogether. Now, uh, when you came back so into wrestling, approached? oh, sorry, Rick. <laughs> I just wanted so, to. So, how were you approached about coming back for the Gimmick Battle Royal in two thousand one? I wasn't. I was working for FCW. And uh, one of the guys that was another guy that was running shows down there was a guy named he wrestled as Bobby Rogers, the nephew of Buddy Rogers. That was his gimmick. And uh, he had a lot of knowledge and he knew a lot of guys, but he was the one that came to me and said, they're doing he said, they're doing a gimmick battle royal. You should probably call somebody and see if they can use you in it. And I was kind of skittish about it because, you know, the way I left, I really didn't want to talk to any of them. But I, I ended up calling Bruce Pritchard. And, uh, you know, he asked them, and they said, okay, and they brought me in for it. All right. And then, um, obviously, you had said that you took a couple years off of wrestling. Um, you recently just came back in 2019 at the uh, Cherokee event. And, Chikara. um, yeah. I, Chikara, sorry. Yeah. And, um, you know, throughout the years, you were dealing with, you know, the nagging injury with your foot, which ultimately led to your foot getting amputated. Now, when you came back, um, did you have to limit your in-ring skills, or did you try to manipulate all the stuff that you did, you know, back when you were wrestling full-time? I definitely could not do anywhere near the stuff that I was doing. Um, In fact, it was in the beginning, uh, when I was wearing the prosthetic and I first started getting in the ring again, it was a chore just to walk up the freaking steps without getting stuck. I got caught in the steps one time. My prosthetic foot got stuck. Uh, and that was embarrassing. Um, my foot would get tangled in the ropes when, when I got thrown out and I'd be hung upside down out the ring because um, I had to get used to moving around with a foot that you couldn't feel anything. And it was very strange. Um, but I could definitely not do the stuff I did back when I was actively wrestling. Um, and it got to the point, though, where this thing created an injury, you know, Basically, on the left foot, the foot's gone from below the calf. And on that stump, basically, they call it a stump. Um, the wear and tear of trying to wrestling in matches with a prosthetic leg ended up creating a contusion. Uh, and it got infected. And I had to have it operated on last November. And I'm actually still healing up from that. Uh, as wow. we speak, I don't have a new prosthetic leg yet. I'm really close to being done healing, but I had it just slowed down healing in the middle of it. And uh, it turned out I had a bacteria in it 
and I had to get that all cleaned out and fixed. But it's been it's been a uh, an experience, and I'm not going to get back in and wrestle anymore. Um, I learned a lesson on that deal. I may walk out there and hit somebody in the head with a can every once in a while, but I'm not going to go wrestle matches where I'm trying to run the ropes and do crap like that or fall out of the ring because that tore my leg up and made it worse and i'm not going to go through this again but that's how it all came about yeah and yeah that chikara thing was great that was fun i love chikara myself um basically you i heard you say in an interview you no longer watch professional wrestling you don't really uh keep up on it at all these days uh you still like uh not keeping up with the business yeah i really don't watch. i don't even have a tv um anything i watch would be on on the internet and uh well i mean i guess they have the the uh the uh network or whatever but yeah i don't watch anything um i'm certainly not paying for the network i told people a long time ago people would ask me why i don't watch it anymore my answer has always been the same it's it's the same storylines and the same ideas run over and over and over again they just plug right. in new names that's all they do yep. there's really not a, a whole lot of new creative ideas in the wrestling business there hasn't been for 30 or 40 years um and, you know, it just got to the point where you were just seeing the same old thing. And, you know, being one of the boys, being an insider, you know what's coming. And it, it, it was just a lot different. The wrestlers, the talent, it's just a, the, the situation's totally different. Back then, there was a lot more allowed creativity to go on in the ring. Now it's not the case. Uh, and that waters it down and makes it boring to me also. Now, one other thing that made me stop rock watching wrestling was the Triple H uh, thing with the freaking uh, the corpse in the, was it the Vicky, what's her face thing? Um, Katie no. Vick? Was that Katie Vick, no. that's it. Yeah. yeah. Katie Vick thing. I saw that shit and I went, I think I'm done watching wrestling. <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, there's a lot that goes on on mainstream wrestling as far as like you know WWF or WWE whatever, and I don't tune in Mondays or Fridays anymore myself. Really, you know, I have them all on my DVR, and I watch a lot more like independent stuff or you know older stuff. So I watch the newer newer NWA. I think is a really great product and uh, Championship Wrestling from Hollywood. That's another really good show to watch. Really? I never heard uh, of that. It's great. Yeah, it's out. been around. It's been around for quite a while too, so it's it's good. It's, it's I just hope the independent like, scene. Yeah, I just hope the independent scene comes back to some semblance of what it was before the COVID nineteen because it was prospering. It was doing great. Uh, yeah. A lot of people were making money and doing well, and and um, this kind of shut everything down. So I hope it can bounce back from I this. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I forgot what I was going to say. Um, so, all right, now I remember. Seeing that you don't, or whatever, have you seen AEW at all? If you've seen Little bits of business. What will happen yeah. for me is, like, if I, see, if I see a conversation on social media, like in the comment section, and a lot of people are talking about a specific match, I'll look it up and, and watch it on, on YouTube or something or catch highlights right. of it. Um, but I don't watch any of the product on any particular channels or like I said, I don't have right. TV, I don't have cable. I don't have TNT yeah. or any of that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty decent product. It's, uh, it's something fresh. It's not, you know, the same thing over and over like the McMahon's have been doing for 30 years or whatever. And uh, boy, Jim Cornette hates it. <laughs> he absolutely does. <laughs> I love just listening to his rants about it. Yeah. 
I'm a cornet guy, so yeah, <laughs> I love that guy. Um, one of the things matches that I highly recommend ever watching was the Dustin Rhodes when he took on his brother Cody Rhodes. I think that was a fantastic match that took place in early AEW. I really like that a lot. Yeah, I saw parts of that after I heard how good it was. I did. I watched yeah. some of it. Uh, yeah, he. Yeah, they both showed up. But Dustin really showed up. That that was yeah. awesome to see him have a match like that. Yeah. Dan, what else you got here tonight? Um. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much. I mean, I know down the line you were also part of the uh, the PWI um, 500, which you actually came in at number 500 now. No. <laughs> he does his well, research. He does. You. He really. Every time we do a show, he does his now, research. Now, from what I was reading, I remember. Um, like somebody had said that you used to come down to the ring and people actually used to chant 500, 500 when you were making your way. No, that's not true. <laughs> no, no. What happened is it's interesting. Right about the same time I was uh, preparing to travel the country and try to get a job. And I ended up walking up to Vince at that convention during the same exact time. I was still wrestling for Sunshine Wrestling Federation. And the same guy, Bobby Rogers, uh, obviously had a contact at PW Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And he came up to me at a show one day and he said, Pro Wrestling Illustrated has this top 500 thing. And um, they're interested in making you uh, number 500. And I kind of looked at him funny, like thinking, isn't that a bad thing? He goes, listen, it's a gimmick. He said, everybody remembers number one and number 500. And I said, that sounds cool to me. I'll do it. So they put me in as number 500 that time in 93 as number 500. They just called me the garbage man is all they called me. Um, but incidentally, coincidentally, that same exact time I walked up to Vince and got the tryout. So as they had just put me in the top 500, I was going to try out for Vince and getting that job. And they saw that Pro Wrestling Illustrated as an opportunity to say they were responsible for me getting hired by Vince McMahon which was not true. And nobody was cheering 500 as I walked to the ring. They did an article after the fact talking about my tryout, and they took some liberties and made some stuff up. Um, and I really appreciated the article, and I, I still, um, you know, um, golly, I can't even think of his name, the guy that runs it. Uh, it used to be Stu Sachs, but I think he just retired like a couple months ago, Then the last couple months. Was no, Stu I'm thinking Sachs? of... Um, Anyway, yeah. no, um, I can't. It'll come to me as soon as we end the interview, I bet. Um, <laughs> it was just a coincidence, uh, and I really appreciated the, the interview that they did and, and all that and the article that they did. They were really nice, but they didn't have anything to do with me getting hired by Vince McMahon and them. Um, they did not. Um, that's how that went down. Um, so you've been doing a podcast weekly with uh, Avi Klein. How long yep. has that been going? And why don't you tell us a little bit more? We just finished our seventh episode. So seven weeks we've been doing oh, it. It's wow. called Road to Recovery. Um, you know, as I talk about, I had, a, I had a very serious drug problem and I am in recovery now. I'm going on seven years of clean and sober. And uh, I work, thank you. I work for a drug court program here in Warren County, Tennessee. I work with people that are going through the same thing, you know, going through drug issues. And I try to help them with it. But I did a podcast with Avi Klein about a year and a half ago called Wrestling With Anything But. And we just kind of had a chemistry, man. We, we got along really well. And we started talking about possibly doing something together. 
and it took about a year and a half. But what he ended up putting together was this huge deal with me and several other wrestlers. He's got Paul Roma. He's got yep. Del Wilkes, the Patriot. He's got Ray Lloyd Glacier. He's got Bill DeMott. He's got Don Morocco, of all people. I totally marked out for Don Morocco, by the way. Uh, and myself. But yeah, mine is called Road to Recovery. It's on Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We talk about recovery issues like substance abuse and stuff like that, but we also talk about other addictions. Recently, we talked about sex addiction. Uh, sex addiction. We talked about domestic abuse. Uh, but we also have fun, and we talk some wrestling, and we cut it up with the wrestling fans. It is live streamed on Facebook. It is on my right. Facebook page, Avi's Facebook page, and all those other wrestlers' Facebook pages right. that are doing it, uh, all live. And uh, it's completely interactive, so people can get on and comment or ask questions. Uh, and it's just a great deal, and it's growing very fast. Uh, I am humbled by the outpouring of support and the people that have shown all of us uh, in this deal. Um, and Avi Klein is the master of the whole thing, man. He is the new godfather of the uh, podcast, I say. Uh, it's just going to get better from here, but I'm loving it. It's something I'm very passionate about, so it's not like I'm work working at it. it. It's fun, and I enjoy it. Right. Uh, and I get to help people along the way as well, uh, and I enjoy that part of it too, because in turn it helps me keep doing what I'm doing for myself. So... Road to Recovery, the podcast with a purpose on Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on my Facebook page, live streamed. Come check it out and join us. All right, Dan, do you have anything else you'd like to add, sir? Uh, you know, all I have to say is, uh, Duke, thank you for coming on to the show, and I'm glad you're impressed with all my uh, wrestling knowledge. I mean, I have been called an encyclopedia in my uh, time, but hey, you know, that's, that's what I you do when you too. Have a All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you have probably done the best research I've ever seen. Uh, even I did, I did Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast, and it was hilarious because everything he did, it, it. His, he calls it his crack research team, but basically it's him cherry picking stuff off of Wikipedia. So you did an even better job than he did. So we should be proud of you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to promote such, uh, outside of the podcast, like social media or anything like that? Just my social media is Mike Drosy uh, on Facebook. I also have a fan page. Um, Duke the Dumpster Official on Facebook. I also have an Instagram, Duke the Dumpster Official. And I also have a Twitter, which I don't use that much, but I do. It's the real Duke Drosy. Um, and those that's all my social media. But all of this stuff right now is going through Facebook. We're getting ready to do some Twitch stuff with it, and we're going to eventually move to Patreon as well. We are building awesome. up our crowd right now of people and followers. Um, but that's basically where I'm at. Mike Drosy Facebook page is where everything happens. If you want to come get any information about any of the other stuff, come check me out on Facebook, Mike Drosy. All right. And I want to say thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. I'd like to hear. I'll tell you when this is uh, when this goes up, probably in the next couple hours. Oh, awesome. Okay, yeah, let yeah. me know. If you want to share it to my Facebook, and I'll share it all over the place, and, you know, whenever you're ready. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Take I appreciate care. it. Take care. Why is it not stopping?